Well, normally I'm baking right now, but I'm telling you what, I feel really good today. Something about taking off that suit coat, I mean, I feel good. I'm not sweating. I mean, it's glorious. My forehead is dry. Uh, This might be a long one. I got to make up for last week. I got to give you your money's worth, right? (laughs) Two weeks worth. That's a twofer. All right. Uh, As we get ready to open our copy of God's word, I do want to remind you of two things. One is that in general, we take seriously the word of God. And and we provide it on the screens for your convenience and, and for those of you at home, for your convenience too, to follow along. But really, folks, there's no substitute for a a tangible, tactile copy of Scripture that you can feel, that you can trace, that you can make notes in. Um, I want to encourage you to to keep a a physical copy of the Word. Uh, You'll find that it's easier to read. It's easier to memorize. It it may sound old-fashioned, but it's just true. And so I want to encourage you in that. But... This is the living word of God, and it promises to transform us by the spirit who attends it. And so, if you do not have a copy of the word of God, we don't want you to go without. Please take a copy from the back of the pew in front of you and take it with you as a gift, or if there's someone dear to you who does not have a copy of the Word of God and, and, and they would read it, give it to them, okay? It's our pleasure to give away freely the Word of God. But if you approach this Word with faith, you will encounter the living Word there. The Son of God who has ascended on high, has sent His Spirit superintending these passages, and you will indeed find life for your soul and nourishment for your spirit. And so it's to this word that we turn our attention this day. So I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We read the inspired words of the Apostle Paul in which he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for this, these introductory words originally written to the beleaguered believers 
in Thessalonica, nonetheless, by your spirit, or inspired for all your people at all times and all places. And we thank you that you have entrusted this word to us. Grant, Lord, that we would be faithful stewards and heralds of it. Meet with us even this morning as we attempt to understand what you are saying. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Okay, brothers and sisters, two weeks ago we began our study at this brief book. And you may recall from two weeks ago that I said that we were splitting the sermon in half. So we preached the first half of that passage uh, two weeks ago. And then we had last Sunday unexpectedly off. Um, and then here we are today. And I just want to remind you, since it's been a couple weeks, that in this letter, which is very brief, only three chapters, uh, Paul wants to do three things. He's accomplishing three things in this passage, or in this chapter. First of all, he's re-encouraging them, or encouraging them yet again to continued steadfastness and faithfulness in the midst of suffering. So he's encouraging them to steady on in the face of suffering. Second, he wants to provide assurance that the Lord has not forgotten them, that they didn't miss the second coming. It seems kind of unreal that people would think that they had been missed, but they did. Someone had been going around saying that Paul was saying that the second coming had happened. Now, what do you do if you're holding out hope, enduring in the face of persecution with this great expectation that the Son of God will return and alleviate, only to hear that supposedly it's happened and you've missed it? Uh-oh. So, so Paul's kind of irritated that someone is spreading this report in his name. He didn't. He's like, I never said that. On the contrary, here's what it's going to be like. So he's wanting to provide assurance that they had not been forgotten by God. And then third, he wants to address how the church should respond to those in their midst who were being idle. In a larger and in a further perspective, this is a glimpse at how we should be living in the now in the face of a pending return of Christ, how do we live and how do we as a church encourage those to live? Three things. So this letter is not addressing rank immorality. It is generally speaking like the first letter to the Thessalonians, an upbeat, happy letter. And that's good. In these opening verses, Paul sets the foundation for all that follows by establishing the context. And he establishes context in two ways. First of all, at the end of verse 4, we see the, the, the Sitzenleben, the, the, the life situation that's going on. Namely, the increase in suffering. So verse 4 at the end provides the life context. Suffering is increasing. Suffering in terms of persecution which is the overt act taken by non-believers, or we could even argue sometimes we're persecuted by misguided believers, aren't we? But then he also mentions the afflictions, 
which isn't persecution, but it's all the other stuff of suffering that comes into our lives. And, and we are all going to suffer more afflictions as life goes by. As time goes by, you're going to suffer the loss of health, the loss of jobs, the loss of relationships, the loss of esteem within relationships, etc., etc. All these problems were compounding just as they compound for us all. But secondly, Paul wants to establish the context, dare I say, theologically. And he reminds the people that they are in a relationship that is a family that has God as our father. And so in that slight tweak from the introduction of 1 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians, he refers to God as our father. Reminding us that we are in a family. And we have someone who loves us and who cares for us, who defends and protects us, a father. But then he secondly reminds us that we have a king, a great captain of our faith, the Lord, that is the the rightful ruler, Jesus Christ. We have someone to whom we are accountable. So we have the dual identity, two truths that are simultaneously present. You are safe and secure in a family. And God loves you and calls you his son, his daughter. You are beloved in the son. And you are safe. But second, or simultaneously, we don't exist for ourselves. We serve at the behest of another. We serve at the command and the beck and the call, dare I say, of a great king. When he says go, we go. When he says come, we come. When he says jump, we say how high. We have a father. We have a king. And so this dual dual nature of our relationship to authority, to the father and to the Lord, manifests itself in the fact that our Christian life, our Christian discipleship, The essence of our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven has two dimensions. It has that vertical dimension, which is our relationship with the almighty God. The expression of trust, assent, and knowledge in those spiritual things that we cannot see. But our identity also has a horizontal dimension which reflects the outworking and the manifestation of the practical outworkings, dare I say, of our vertical truth. And we see these two dimensions here in verse 3, where he says that their faith is growing abundantly and their love for one another is increasing. And so in Paul, whenever he is juxtaposing, or maybe juxtaposing is the wrong word, but whenever he distinguishes between faith and love in this kind of a context, faith refers to that vertical dimension of relationship between you and God. 
And love is always others-directed. And here, he makes it explicit that he's referring to love for one another. So our Christian faith, our Christian walk, consists of two dimensions, vertical and horizontal. You have duties and responsibilities and, dare I say, privileges even, in regard to your relationship with God. And you have those same in relationship to other people. This is why you cannot be a flourishing Christian if you isolate yourself from the world and only focus on the vertical. This is why you cannot be a flourishing Christian if you become wrapped up in being a social do-gooder without any reflection or any effort in relationship to the vertical. It's both vertical and horizontal that together is a flourishing faith. And so we, we talked last week, sorry, two weeks ago, that what struck out to me here, struck out to me, stuck out to me here, was his referencing a growing faith. And I said that I wanted to, in this second half of the sermon, focus more or less on what does he mean by a growing faith, and, and why should we pursue a growing faith? Well, one of the things that is true about our Christian walk is at its core what is happening to us when we are, in the words of Philippians, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. What is happening to us as we are sanctified? When we are sanctified, we are conformed to the image of the Son. So the end result, the end product, is that you will bear the likeness of Jesus. When you are glorified, you're not going to look like a clone of him in terms of your physical appearance, but your moral judgment your ethical life, the priorities of your thought will reflect Jesus. And this process of recreation, of, of putting on the new man, of being tr transformed into the image of our Lord, all that stuff is, is Bible language for essentially learning to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In sanctification, you are made fit for heaven, so to speak. When you have a child, the child comes into the world, and I reject the blank slate notion. They have hardwired in them a will and a disposition they, they have, okay? But from the earliest moments we begin, even if we're not even cognizant of the fact that we're doing it, we are enculturating them into life with the values that we have in our age and in our day. We discipline them from the things that we believe are harmful or socially uh, uh, egregious, not just physically. We don't, we're not Vikings. We're not Huns. 
We don't teach our kids to take other toys and, and, and oppress the, the weak. We don't honor that, do we? We don't reward them for successfully stealing from our neighbors, do we? I, mean, I hope you're not. From the earliest days, we are conditioning them to be socially uh, responsible members of society. In a similar way, in the Great Commission, when Jesus says that we, that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We see that commission being fulfilled then in the role of the church officers that he has appointed in Ephesians 4 until we reach the point of maturity. So there's a very real sense then in which the process of discipleship is learning to shed the attributes, attitudes, and actions of whatever native culture we come from to instead put on the attitudes, actions, and attributes of Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom. And one of the things that we are called to repeatedly in Scripture is a growing, maturing, strong faith. But I ask you, do you have a growing faith? If it's true that we don't arrive, any of us, until glorification, that means there's always room to grow as long as we are alive. Do you have a growing faith? Or has your faith been stagnant for years? I want to challenge you. In fact, I want to appeal to you. Work. Strengthen. Grow your faith. When we think about a faith, we're oftentimes confronted more often with examples of a weak faith, of little faith. That is, the, that is the unfortunate reality. We have a lot more examples of immature faith than we do mature, growing, strong faith. So legion are the number of ways in which our faith can remain weak and small that if you read Pilgrim's Progress, a great many of the characters depicted therein by Bunyan are personifications of examples of weak faith. But we are called to a strong faith. And so what I want to do right now is go over three symptoms, three problems you'll experience if you have a weak faith, but then conversely, the benefits you will receive with a strong faith in regards to this. Now, first and foremost, I want every single one in here to praise God that a weak faith can save. 
I don't think there's any one of us who can ever mature past the words of Jesus, the words of Peter in the fishing boat. When he says what? Jesus does a miracle. And what does Peter do? He falls down. And what does he say? Lord, I believe. And what does he say next? Help my unbelief. We are sinners still, and we will always struggle with unbelief. So you are not alone in that struggle. And the presence of the struggle, in fact, in many ways, indicates the presence of vitality. But there are three problems with not growing in your faith, of being content with, a, with an immature, childish faith. First, you will have little assurance of salvation. People with a weak faith are so easily toppled from their place of assurance. Any little bump in the road makes them question God's love for them. Little assurance will lead you to feeling trepidatious, unsure, timid. You won't see the victories that are already there. But God wants you to rest in the assurance given by the Spirit. Have you seen someone with great assurance? It's wondrous. They can practically see the streets of gold. What great strength you will have in life, brother. What great strength you will have, sisters. It will strengthen your faith so that your assurance is all but unshakable. You can't do great things for God if you're not even sure he loves you. And God wills you to have assurance. He writes a whole letter of the book about assurance. I mean, a whole letter of the Bible about assurance. But second, based upon having little assurance, if you have a weak faith, you will, you will do minimal attempts for, for, to do, you'll have minimal attempts to do things for God. A weak faith always sees the problem. A weak faith always focuses on apparent reality. A weak faith looks like Saul in his tent in 1 Samuel 17. He saw the problem. A weak faith continually, implicitly calls God a liar. Why? Because hath God not said, my grace is sufficient for thee. And yet what does a weak faith say? I don't see it. All I see are these problems. I don't think we can take this bold step. I don't think I can stand and be a witness. I don't see the grace that's sufficient for me. 
And because it doesn't see it, it doesn't act out in faith. Now David, in 1 Samuel 17, he knew that the grace of God was sufficient for him. He was able to recall past victories of the Lord, which is something you won't do with a little faith. And he knew that God's grace was indeed sufficient. And so he confronted the enemy of the people of God. He attempted a great thing for God, knowing that he operated in the great strength of that God. And brothers and sisters, hath not God promised us the same? Has he not said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church? Has Jesus not personally assured us of his presence until the very end of the age? So grow in your faith, knowing that he has given you everything that is sufficient to overcome the threats and challenges to your discipleship. Third, a weak faith, brothers and sisters. If you stay and remain an infant, you will be more prone to stumbling when tempted. Temptation comes, and even the strongest believer, even the one who can practically close their eyes and see the pearly gates, is going to give in to the temptation of sin from time to time. But someone whose faith is weak, who remembers not the promise of God to be sufficient in the moment of need, is going to hear more loudly the promises of the world. When the devil offers us the proverbial world, we will forget that God has already given us all things in Christ. When the devil and his people threaten you, you will be fearful, forgetting that our Lord has commanded us to fear not the one who can kill the body, but after that do nothing, but rather to fear the one who can first destroy the body, then cast the soul into hell. When the devil whispers in your ear that God will never, ever accept someone like you, a little faith will believe it. A weak faith will think that's true. And the devil will get what he wants. He can't take away your salvation, but he can take away your joy. He can make you utterly mission ineffective. He can make your life miserable. That's a good that's a good consolation prize, I guess, for him. No. Grow in your strength from the Lord. Have a great faith so you can refute the lies and false promises of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That you will know that before the Father stands one whose pleading is utterly sufficient and effective, that because of Jesus, God will accept you. 
because of Jesus, the Spirit will in fact empower you. And so, you can say no to sin as you put on the new man and wage war against the flesh. But how do we grow? How do we grow? Well, not last night, the night before. Friday night, I was re-watching Thor Ragnarok. Of the three Thor movies, it is the best. Okay? And Kay likes to watch, uh, while while we're watching movies, she likes to go on to, what is IMBD? Whatever, she likes looking at the trivia surrounding the movie. And so... For this movie, Thor Ragnarok, Chris Hemsworth got especially jacked. I mean, he is ripped. And one of the trivia was that in order to prepare for that role, he consumed 6,000 calories a day. Maybe I would look like that if I ate 6,000 calories a day. What do you think? Should I go for it? No. (laughs) No. No. But how do we grow? Well, in one sense, it's the same basic principles. We need to nourish. We need to get proper nourishment. We need to get proper exercise. And we need to have proper rest. Those three dynamics of growth are just as true for for. Chris Hemsworth working out on a movie set to athletes preparing to us growing in the Lord. We must receive proper nourishment, which is what? Principally the intake of the word. Now, I'm telling you, you got to believe me. Reading the Bible alone in absent from all the other things isn't going to have Dare I say, oh Lord, not a whole lot of effect. But if you're not regularly consuming the word, you are depriving yourself of nourishment. And all the exercise and rest you may have without proper nourishment will result in a non-great faith. So ingest the word. Partake of the sacraments. Fuel yourself in godly company. Engage in the corporate and private worship of God. Pray. Do these things. Ingest these things. When we pray, we're not so trying to bend God to our will. We are are bending ourselves to God. But don't just ingest the word. Don't just come to church. We need to do more than ingest and be nourished. We need to exercise. And principally, the exercising we do looks like the, the other half, the horizontal plane, uh, the horizontal dimension of our walk. Namely, to love one another. Engage in self-sacrificial acts of loving service to Christ and his kingdom. As we come together 
in fellowship and pour ourselves out using what God has given to us. That is stretching our faith muscles in exercise. And we are to do things such as spurring one another on, encouraging one another. Dare I say, goading one another in a most holy competition. Paul indeed challenges us to outdo one another in love and service. Is that not setting up a holy competition? I think so. And so, real quick, I want to do just that. A week ago, whatever, we, our church family was met, like everyone in this area, with, with problems. And I am so proud of this church. We had people opening up their homes for people to stay. We had people opening up their homes for showers. We had people offering rides. We had people offering meals. We had people offering work in the form of plumbing. And at the church property itself, we had issues when a pipe broke. Praise the Lord, Jacob was here when it happened. And so he was able to stop the water almost immediately. But the deacons came out in force. All four of them were here cleaning up water, working to de-ice the pipes that were over the office lest they too burst. And specifically, I want to call out, I don't normally do this, but Jacob, you did an awesome, awesome job. You, you did, you went above and beyond the call of duty as a deacon. And we thank God for that. Brothers and sisters, that is stretching your faith muscle. Serving and loving. Remembering that just as Jesus set aside all the glories and prerogatives of heaven to come and serve the purposes of God for our salvation, so too can we serve. But then third, we need rest. Rest. Devotional exercise such as reflection. The Bible speaks often of meditating on God's word. Psalm 119 is one of those passages. A man of God, he meditates on God's word day and night. The discipline of being still. Allow yourself to rest in the presence of the Lord, reflecting on his greatness and what he has done for you. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage and challenge and plead with you to have a maturing, growing, strong faith. Feed and nourish your faith. Exercise and strengthen that faith. And get the proper rest for your soul. And brothers and sisters, as we mature, you will find 
that God seemingly does the impossible. And where we saw only problems and obstacles, we will soon see a field of green and what we thought was a dry, barren gully. God does the impossible. Have the faith to see it. 